0: Ashley Kim Weiss is the national coordinator for Together for Choice. She's an entrepreneur and disability advocate and also the president and CEO of Elevator Community, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to create supportive communities for adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. She's a national certified guardian and licensed California professional fiduciary. She holds a bachelor's degree in finance and management from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and a master's degree in business administration from the Claremont Graduate University's Drucker School of Business. Today, we have a very, very in-depth conversation around housing and employment. We touch on some really hot topics, you know, including but not limited to the sub-minimum wage, sheltered workshops, and things like that. And, and it was great having this conversation because it wasn't just your, your normal Shelter workshops, bad, minimum wage, bad. There, there's more nuance to that. And, and I happen to agree with Ashley about there, there may be a time or place for both a subminimum wage and a sheltered workshop. And that's really what, what Together for Choice is all about is it's all about giving the individual the ability to choose what they want and supporting them. They do three things. They share information on intellectual developmental disability, long-term residential options. They have built a national platform of IDD, Intellectual Developmental Disability Resources, and they elevate the voices of people with IDD, their families and their service providers. If you're a family member, an individual with a disability, you can join together for choice and you you can become a member for free. If you're an organization serving individuals with disabilities, it, it costs money to join but I encourage you to consider it. My name's Eric Jorgensen. I'm the host of the ABC's Disability Planning Podcast and the founder of True North Disability Planning. I started this podcast to introduce you to organizations and individuals you may not have heard of, or if you you have heard of them, help you get a better idea of, of how you may be able to integrate and implement what they're doing into your life. Let's dive in. Welcome, everyone. Today I have with me Ashley Kim Weiss from Together for Choice, and I want to read off a statement that I got from their website. We must come together and advocate for high-quality life options for people with IDD, intellectual developmental disabilities. And their policy statement starts with, and I quote, enhancing the lives of all all individuals with disabilities. So with with that intro, Ashley, thanks for joining me. I, I think it's very clear that your mission at Together for Choice is all about supporting individuals with intellectual developmental disabilities and giving them the rights to choose to live however they want to. And I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for inviting me to this wonderful podcast. And I look forward to having this important conversation.
0: Let's let's start pretty with a, you know, pretty easily with a softball. What is it that Together for Choice does? I mean, are you a advocacy organization? Are you a lobbying organization? All of the above, none of the above?
1: Well, we're a national advocacy organization with the mission to advance the rights of individuals with intellectual and development disabilities to live, work, and thrive in a setting of their choice. As our website shows, our position is that the individual and their family know best what type of residential and vocational programs and opportunities best meet their needs and preferences. And the role of government, federal and state, should be to support all quality options, allowing the individual and his or her family to choose the option they prefer.
0: And that that opens up quite a can of worms. And we were talking a little bit before I hit record. Yeah, you know, we'll start with vocational first, because housing, that's going to be a big, big topic. I mean, vocational is pretty big too. You know, it's, those are the two, in my opinion, I, I think it's probably backed up by fact. Those are the two biggest issues faced by anybody with a disability right now, whether it's intellectual, developmental or otherwise, accessible housing and employment. And, and yeah. with employment, I'm seeing a big push across the country and in, in certain states for a Medicaid work requirement that's not supposed to, in air quotes, affect people with disabilities, but. I, I don't. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. What what the, what is the position together for choice with regards to Medicaid work requirements and you know what what's your feeling about it?
1: Well, there is a national move to eliminate facility based work programs and subminimum wage work programs. Right. So the goal of those policies is to help individuals gain competitive employment in the greater community, which we support that option for sure. But we also recognize that that may not be a reality for many individuals with significant disabilities who may not be successful in competitive employment. And they also require a lot of support that they may not be able to get in these type of typical traditional competitive employment. And so what we're asking All the policymakers is to acknowledge that, you know, there's no one size fits all, not just in housing, but also in employment options, and especially individuals who thrive in certain settings that are more confined or not confined, but like more controlled, that's what I'm trying to say, they They do well in certain type of shelter workshops. They do well when they're working with other peers like them. They don't feel like they're all alone and isolated. And in the greater community, they're not as overwhelmed. We need to provide those opportunities to these individuals. And if they feel more confident after being trained in those type of settings and say, hey, I'm ready to go out and work in a greater community, You know, I want to seek employment in certain different industries and things like that, different settings. We should support that. Option that choice as well, but trying to eliminate all those options just because the government thinks that it's not it doesn't support their own ideology or the position. I think it's a discriminatory uh, discriminatory practice against individuals who are more severely affected.
0: And, and I I agree with you, Ashley. I believe if I remember correctly, Maryland has gotten rid of their sub minimum wage. And what kind of disappointed me? Not kind of. What did disappoint me was that organizations like the ARC were supporting abolishing the sub-minimum wage. And I think I understand where the intent is with the concern that we're going to have companies trying to pay a sub-minimum wage to somebody just to get out of paying them a living wage. But my concern is that may, and I, I'm struggling here because I feel very passionately and I don't want to go too far on tangent. There are people who aren't gonna get hired. I mean, that's yeah. not the world we live in. People, ju- employers are looking for people that can do multiple jobs. And everybody is saying do less with, or do more with less, right? We, you know, budgets are especially in high inflation environments, you know, people are getting laid off. So they're, the people that are staying or the people that are getting hired are the people that can do multiple jobs. And like it or not, some people with disabilities are, are really, at capacity to do one or one task that they're being asked to do and, and then asking to do more, it, it's just not realistic. And I don't think it's fair to hold an employer responsible for not hiring somebody that can't, can't do more. I, I don't think it's fair and I don't think it's realistic.
1: So let's talk about some of the arguments behind advocating to shut down those type of sub wage. And one of the first things that people talk about is the exploitation of employers. You know, exploitation happens. And that's why we need to do a better job in enforcing people's rights. And so if you're not doing a good job enforcing, that doesn't mean you should shut down everything. I mean, there are a lot of bad schools out there. There are a lot of bad teachers out there. So should we shut down all the schools? I mean, there are a lot of parents that are pretty bad, right? There are bad parents. So should we just abolish the institution of families because there are bad families out there. I mean, it's like that argument is so limited when you start introducing different, you know, logics, right? So, I mean, applying this logic to other situations. And, you know, I'm people talk about like, well, you know, everyone has a dignity of, you know, minimum wage or more. Well, people have dignity to, like they are seeking dignity of work, So people who do not care about whether they get paid $18 an hour or $15 an hour, but they want to be able to wake up every day knowing that they have a sense of purpose and sense of where they go every day, what to do every day. That means more to them than just a dollar figure. And so to take that freedom away from them is... I mean, to be honest, I think that's worse than you know trying to advocate for minimum wage. A lot of times when I meet individuals with disabilities, some of them do try competitive employment and they get a job, but sometimes, oftentimes they just bounce around from one job to the next because it just doesn't work out. So every time they have to change jobs. I mean, you know, their confidence level goes down. They're more insecure about who they are. They're very anxious about what to expect from their new environment. I mean, how is that in- empowering individuals with disabilities? It's not, you know. And I, I went to this one work program out in Texas, and I asked this one particular woman because she's she was very articulate. She was very capable of doing a lot of good things and hard work. And I said, why aren't you out there seeking competitive employment? Why are you here? She said that she has tried out in the greater community and she was often bullied by fellow coworkers. She was misunderstood by her managers and superiors, supervisors. And she felt very much misunderstood and ignored. And she felt very lonely and isolated. And until she found this particular work program. And now she feels accepted, she feels like she can be herself, and she feels like she has job security, that she won't be misunderstood, and if she's having issues, she knows that there will be support available to help her succeed, where else she couldn't find that in competitive employment. And so that is actually... Some uh, benefit, so many benefits that come from these type of site-based programs that a lot of people don't think about and don't know anything about. And so when you take away those job options, even before states start implementing the elimination of sub-minimum wage, they're scrutinizing these type of programs where the programs are like, well, we can't be sustainable, you know, and the writing is on the wall. So we're just going to give up and shut down these programs. What happens? then these individuals end up staying home all day watching TV. Right. So
0: or, or they get asked they get they get told they have to go volunteer for meaningful day yeah. services and now they're doing labor for free.
1: Yes. Volunteer or go bowling, watch a movie and go to malls and Target and Starbucks and hang out, go for a van ride. I can do those kind of things maybe for a day or so, but to do that every single day and not feel like you're waking up and with some kind of purpose, you know, and you know that you're not being a productive individual in the community, contributing member of the community, that is the key. And when you take away those opportunities, then these individuals feel like they have really nothing to live for and many of the individuals that i know that have lost jobs through that kind of you know policy decision as a result of the policy decision have fallen into really bad depression you know they've regressed so much they have so much anxiety now and it's something that it's really hard to get out of once you get stuck in that
0: yeah and to be clear the the people that were uh, so the people that i have in mind actually are not the ones that are going to be Working at you know McDonald's or Burger King or these are the ones that are more significantly impacted by their disability. It doesn't necessarily matter what the disability is. It just it it's significantly impacting them in their ability to do things and keep up in a a a competitive work environment. I'm trying to think of of words that aren't going to be too offensive. I mean this this whole episode is going to be pretty offensive to some. Yeah. But I don't want to deliberately alienate somebody or have somebody take something out of context. You know, when you have individuals who are significantly disabled and you're competing against people without disabilities or people with disabilities who aren't as limited by the disability or or lack of skills, you know, that's the other thing we have to face such reality is schools. This is my opinion, Eric Jorgensen is speaking for himself now. Schools, if you have a child with who falls in the middle or or towards the more severe end of the disability spectrums in terms of how how the how capable the, the school thinks they are, become nothing more in my opinion than daycares. And I I speak yeah. about this from my observation of my son in high school, where a lot like you said, going to the mall, going to Petco, you know, it was supposed to be helping him get used to the being out in the community. And he did eventually go into a program in Frederick for the Success Program after he finished his senior year of high school, eighteen and twenty-one. That did really functional living skills. But mm-hmm. when he was in high school, high school, it was it was kind of asinine. I'm like, why are we why are we worrying about telling time on an analog clock? Why are we counting change? Who uses cash? And where's a you know where's an analog watch? Mm-hmm. I mean, why aren't we using real things like how to, if you're going to do anything, how to use a credit card responsibly or, you know, because now TrueLink has their debit card. Yeah. Why not use that could be functional. My point to all that is, if you want somebody to be competitive, they, that that competitiveness, that starts at school and that starts to the pre-employment transition services that the school and the parents should be enrolling with voc rehab at age 14. But with limited budgets, limited space and limited employers that are working for, it goes again, the default is going to be who's the most capable, what's the easiest to place. So by the time these kids are leaving high school or at 21 or 26 in Michigan, they don't have any experience. No. So what are we going to, so who's going to hire them? I, I mean, I just. It just seems stacked against them from from as far back as high school to adulthood. And I I totally get wanting like, I don't want my son in a sheltered workshop. I think he's capable of more. Mm -hmm. But right now, he's not working anywhere.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, and I live in Maryland. and, And if I had a choice of him doing what he's doing now, which is nothing, sitting in his bedroom all day, or a sheltered workshop, I would well, just-
1: I think okay. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no. you know, you say you don't want to send into shelter workshops. It depends on what kind of shelter workshop yes. it is, right? I mean, if it's a shelter workshop that is, you know, putting pieces together, I don't think that is. Yeah, busy I don't, it's, right. it's a busy work. It's just these people are sitting there putting, it's not stimulating. So I, right. I agree with you. Right. But the shelter workshops that I know of have a recycling program, bakeries, you know, art centers, they put together, you know, they contract with, you know, contractors of FedEx to print out certain sheets and putting together boxes. I mean, those are very stimulating work. Yeah. And especially yeah. for a lot of young men who need to be, who like to be physical, yep. you know, moving boxes and moving heavy items and things like that. They really actually enjoy it. Right? And, right. and horticulture is a big thing. And also animals, you know, caring for animals and things like that, I think are really good work programs, but also very soothing and therapeutic as well. And so I have individuals that do really well in horticulture. I am terrible in horticulture. I would never survive doing that kind of work because I would have like, as soon as I plant, I touch a plant, the plant dies. So I can't do that. But there are a lot of individuals who love horticulture kind of work. They love working like with their hand and, you know, planting seeds and all those kind of things. And I think those are all important options that we need to preserve and protect. So just kind of by saying, well, all site-based programs are bad, all facility-based programs are bad, all shelter workshops are bad, is is a very short-sighted position that, you know, we need to be all about person-centered and whatever works for the individual, we need to support.
0: Right. And then we can we can build up, right? Like you were saying yeah. earlier when, and when the interview started, you, 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 were saying they can build on their skills. Yeah. If, if, if they, you know, if they eventually get to the place where they can, you know, I hate to say it this way, but if they can keep up, yeah. because that's what employers want, right? They want to know, okay, so you're going to go from this sheltered workshop doing horticulture to Lowe's or, yeah. or something, right. And now you're moving P pe- and you're unloading trucks or whatever you can keep up and now you yeah. you become something that the employer would hire i think the concern is once you get in there you're pigeonholed and you're never gonna you're never gonna progress beyond that
1: but what does the person want
0: right right
1: right <laughs> I and mean, if the person enjoys his job that's the thing it's like okay your picture you know how many people do you know that are neurotypicals that actually love going to work every day
0: <laughs> not many
1: no, <laughs> most of the people that I know that work in these type of community you know intentional type of communities love going to work. Yeah. This is where they socialize, they interact with other people and they develop skills. I mean, what is the whole thing about like we there has to be some kind of you know progression in your career and things like that. well, who what does that make you happy? You know, well, does yeah, that make? They- yeah,
0: and the sheltered workshop isn't necessarily the same thing as the subminimum wage, right? That they can be, they're 2 they don't have to be. The hand workshop in
1: hand. does not only pay subminimum wage. Right. It, they assess person's ability to perform, and based on that, they determine what is appropriate wage based on their performance and their their capacity. And so it could go up, and it could go down, but. If you take that option away, then you're eliminating somebody's employment opportunity, period. And that's what we want to prevent. And so many of these places are not even available anymore. There's always a long wait list to get into these type of programs. Most of the sub-minimum wage programs are operated by not-for-profit organizations. So, you know, people who are saying that people are doing this to exploit people with disabilities, is uh, you're talking, you, people are using those anecdotal examples to kind of say that that's what happens in the entire industry is is very polarizing. Yeah,
0: I, I feel like it's similar to the, the, what I hear about institutions, right? Now, I believe in some cases institutions are the appropriate place for an individual to live. Yeah. Not everybody. And I don't believe in warehousing. No. But in some cases, there are individuals who are a risk to themselves or others. And the institution with all the structure associated becomes, you know, more, it's the best environment. And then, you know, on the other, like again, we were talking before we hit record. There's also going to be individuals who don't want to live in the middle of a city or don't want to live in the middle of the community. My son is one of the, you know, really prefers to be alone. He doesn't want to be in the community. But there's this big push where everybody has to live in the middle of the community and be a member of the community. And I, I can tell you, Ashley, I had a small group of friends in high school. But by and large, I was a loner. I, I didn't play team sports. I played pool. Or Mm -hmm. I, you know, I like hiking, I like very solitary things, but I don't feel like we're giving our our individuals with disabilities the same option. They have to be around people. So you guys are, um, (laughs) go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot of things to say
1: about that. Well, when you say warehousing, I, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, uh, it was very common that, you know, I I think I believe the statistics was that nine out of 10 people receiving Medicaid services were living in an institution. But now, thanks to the Social Security Act in the 1980s and the movement to move people out of those problematic institutions. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. State-run institutions, might I add. And those warehousing days of you know putting 3,000 people in a building. Yeah, where... we only
0: do that for prisons now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so those are something that no one would ever want us to revisit, right? I mean, we want people to live happily and live a full life in a setting that is appropriate for them. With that being said, now now 9 out of 10 people receiving Medicaid services are now living in home community-based settings. But let's look at that. I think the overwhelming majority of people who do not live with family members at home are living in a small group home setting, right? And um, oftentimes, those type of settings can be kind of uh, warehousing in a small institutions because there's not much support out there many of these individuals living in a group home are actually more isolated physically they're integrated living next to neighbors who are neurotypicals but oftentimes they don't know their neighbors neighbors actually resent their presence in their own neighborhood they don't have a proper you know social support that help them feel they have like they're they have they don't have a sense of belonging as they should and, you know, this whole thing of, well, you know, if you have neighbors who are not disabled, you, then you're then you integrated and you have high quality of life. It's somewhat, it's actually very insulting to me, you know, that, well, so you need to have a neighbor that's not disabled in order to have a good quality of life. I mean, I know so many people living in intentional communities that live with others who are kind of like them, that live a very full life and they have a sense of belonging they have lifelong friendships they have conflicts but that's also managed properly and why is that you know it's, it's like so small settings are not institutional and it's not isolating and that's that's a that's a myth i believe that you know a lot of individuals that i know there's no one-size-fits-all. Right. Some individuals thrive in a smaller setting. Some individuals thrive living in an apartment building, you know, unit by himself or herself. They do really well. But others, they live in a life of isolation and which leads to depression and high level of anxiety. And, you know, obesity is a big issue for many individuals with disabilities. There, There's a reason why they need, Medicaid services, <laughs> right, right, and, and
0: if the only person you're associating with is your support staff, are you really integrated in the community? And then I think COVID showed us the risks that that come, you know. And this is again Eric's rant, but we saw a lot of a lot of direct support professionals because of the wages they're paid are working two or three jobs, so they're bouncing from house to house and bringing, you know, in the case of COVID. They're bringing COVID from house to house. Yeah. You know, these are individuals who are not going out and about, but they're still getting COVID. Well, they've got to be getting it from somewhere. And it's probably the caregiver who's working to, you know, another job for another agency or whatever. And then freedom of choice is a big one for me. And it's, it's, I looked at having my son living in a group home because candidly it would, it would have made my life easier. There was a time where he was very destructive, very violent holes in the walls, doors. I mean, just not pleasant. Right. But he would have had, I feel that he would have had very little autonomy. He would have had to eat when everybody else in the house ate, he would have had to eat whatever dinner everybody else was eating. And I mean, that might seem like a small thing, but you know, it's important. And you know, if they, Unless every unless every bedroom has a TV, which I'm not a fan of for other reasons, but then then who's gonna get to, you know what are you watching? You watching what the DSP wants to watch? Are you watching what one person wants? I, again, it's that autonomy, right? So I I want I don't know what the answer is because I believe you're right, Ashley. I think there are people that enjoy living together, but I think they need to have some say in who their roommates are gonna be. Yeah. You know, well, that
1: that is the, the in, that is the intent of the the CMS's home and community-based services settings rule is that people should have a right to choose who they live with and when they want to eat, what they would like to eat, have access to food and have the freedom to furnish their own like, you know, apartment or home. So that is the right intent of the settings rule and we support that. We celebrate all that. But on the other hand, that interpretation of the settings rule was so limiting in some ways that, you know, many states were looking at that and say, well, that settings rule is requiring that people need to live in a small setting, they shouldn't have more than you know, each apartment building shouldn't have more than 25% of the, you know, allocation of the units for people with disabilities, they started adding more to what the settings rule was intending to do. And that became problematic, right? So people, you know, it basically says like that when the settings rule first was introduced in 2014, CMS also issued a guidance that, describe what settings may be isolating and therefore may not qualify for the funding. And they described all types of different intentional type of communities like such as farmsteads, campus-based settings, you know, any other type of disability specific settings. But then in 2019, CMS came out with a new guidance that replaced the 2014 guidance, but states are still continuing, many states, not all states are still continuing to follow the old guidance that presumes that these type of disability-specific settings, settings that are specifically designed for people with disabilities, are isolating and therefore does not qualify for HBS settings. And what baffles me is that there's no special needs population other than people with IDD that are subject to this type of restrictions, you don't tell somebody with mental health you cannot live with anybody with schizophrenia. Like, or you don't tell anybody any seniors. You don't tell any you know veterans. We there's a really nice VA hospital in my town where there's a really nice facility for VAs with mental health that live there. And people say well, it's like a it's like Club Med, you know, Ritz Carlton for people with mental health. And that's provided to them because they are VAs, right? So that is okay. But people and, with and disabilities for like cannot seniors, live together.
0: Yeah, and for seniors, I've seen I've seen articles where they've had like senior living facilities, yeah. you know, designed
1: to be towns for people with dementia. Yeah, and so if you see all these brochures and just replace the word seniors with people with disabilities, <laughs> all of a sudden that's bad. It's good when it's senior, but when it's with IDD, it's bad. There's no logic. This is crazy. And so, you know, people who don't want to live in those type of communities, we're not forcing them. And that's the craziest part is that, you know, I've argued this before, that when government tries to come in and try to dictate choice on people with disabilities by withholding government funding, then those options are only available to those that can afford without government help, right? So it's the the gap between the haves and have nots in the disability community just continue to increase because families with lots of money that do not have to rely on government funding are lined you know, out the door to get their child into these type of campus communities that benefit these individuals so much that they're willing to wait five years, 10 years, 20 years, save up millions of dollars just to get their child into these type of communities. So if it's that bad, (laughs) then why is there such a long wait list to get into these type of communities? And why are the, the people without really you know a lot of money for themselves just you know they have to only take you know group home options so there's inequity here right and so i think that's where i come in i just go well so if it's that bad then you should just make it illegal for everybody right and if it's that bad then you should not allow people like i'm korean-american and I live 30 minutes away from Koreatown in Los Angeles. Is the government going to go there and say, you know, you have too many Koreans living all in the same area. You need to all disperse and, you know, bring in other, you know, ethnic groups. I mean, that would never happen. Right. So why is the constitutional right for individuals with IDD to be able to live with others and associate with others like them. Why is that constitutional right being violated by the government that's supposed to be serving individuals, you know, with IDD, not dictating them? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and again, I I, I think it, it started from a place of genuine concern, where yeah. you had you had a lot of individuals, or or a vocal minority speaking for the majority you know, and then you see it with the autism self-advocacy network, right, which, who are very, very active for individuals on the autism spectrum, but they represent relatively small portion of the entire spectrum. It's a spectrum. It's a spectrum.
1: And, and, and what baffles me is that those individuals more on the higher end of the spectrum argue that they know what, you know, they know best, like what the individuals on the other side of the spectrum needs and prefer more than their own family members. It's like my, I have a family member who is, who was recently diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, but he's, you know, very high functioning. Right. And he, you know, I envisioned that he would go to college and he would do pretty well, he would have his own struggles, right. But when it comes to, you know, living on his own, I don't think it's going to be as challenging. You know, he'll be able to express, you know, himself, his thoughts and needs and what he wants to do in his life and things like that, just like everybody else. I don't expect him to understand the needs of some of the individuals and their families that I work with that need to be on a diaper and they can't, be, they're not verbal. They have lots of complex behavioral challenges that cannot be easily addressed. I don't expect my family member to understand that those families' needs. He never will. And so for those advocates to say, "Well, I'm autistic, and your child is autistic, and therefore, I know your child more than you do, even though you spend 24-7, you know, every single day caring for your child. You you know, even if you know everything about your child, I know more about your child than your, you know, you do. I think that's crazy. And, and the, the fact that the policymakers actually listen to that nonsense just, you know, infuri- it's very infuriating. <laughs> but I,
0: I feel like they have to, right? Because, you know, policymakers have a limited amount of time and they, they don't have experience in this. So they're going to listen. I mean, that's why lobbyists make so much money because they have access. And- well,
1: that's why people have, there's a, the lowest sense of, you know, confidence and trust in Congress, right? <laughs> <laughs> like they don't know anything. And that's exactly why, like it's and but the thing is, the funny thing is, it's not the policymakers that what I feel like is happening is all those unelected people that are actually controlling what's happening in the Medicaid world, and those are the ones that set, you know, come up with the regulations that are very restrictive and take away people's rights to choose. And when we turn to the elected officials they don't listen to us. They listen to those individuals who claim to know what's best for everybody. And I think that's really unfortunate. So that's why we have organizations like Together for Choice and all these other small organizations, grassroots organizations that are popping up everywhere, driven by families and service providers and individuals with developmental disabilities that are saying, no, this is our voice. We need to... You know, you guys need to listen to us because that what you're hearing is one side of the story. But there is a whole spectrum of needs and preferences that you have to recognize, and we need to come together and be more united in our messaging to these policymakers. And that's why our organization's name is Together for Choice.
0: And 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 doesn't Together for Choice? You guys, you guys have. Membership organizations, right? I mean, my my notes when I was when I was prepping for this interview, you have twenty six hundred members in fifty states, probably more than that. You you serve over twenty five thousand eight hundred individuals, and you have one hundred and twenty four organizations involved. Yeah. So I mean, that's what you were saying, right, Ashley? Where you have these grassroots and these other, and some of these organizations on your website, they're not grassroots. They look pretty big. Yeah. But they all team up with you, right? So you're, you're now you have one voice.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, we do have organizations, uh, organization members, and so many of these organizations members, small and big, collectively serve over you know twenty some thousand individuals with development disabilities across the country. But we also have majority, overwhelming majority of our members are families okay who feel like their voices are not being heard they are frustrated because they can't really find options that are suitable for their loved ones with special needs and many of them are concerned about what's going to happen to them when when they're gone so we want to we came together as a response to the government's government implementing policies that are really just very one-sided but at the same time as time went on we recognized that there's a huge need to create a resource hub where people can come to our website and come to us and access information that are really you know, helpful to plan for their loved ones with special needs, but also kind of uh, where we come together and equip our members to better advocate for their loved ones and themselves with special needs. So we kind of see ourselves more mm-hmm. as a support to many of these individuals and uh, many of our members. We obviously cannot go to every state in the country to do people's work, but we provide all the support that we can provide in order for our members to be successful in their own state. So, I mean, but let's face it, the settings rule, which was introduced in 2014, is now finally implemented. It was implemented in March of 2023 this year. So, the federal government is saying well our job is done we need to continue to implement you know what the settings rule says but at the end of the day it's now state by state issue of how each state interprets the rule and yep. implements the rule and like i said before many states looked at the new 2019 guidance and realized that the guidance is the settings rule does not prohibit disability specific settings and that it's really about outcomes, person-centered outcomes. But mm, there are more than enough states that are still misinterpreting the settings rule and prohibiting HCBS funding in campus-based programs, or disability specific settings such as farmstead. So, and they do have like a number uh, limit on how many people can live in one setting, how close they could live together, how they should spend their time, where they should spend time and with whom. It's all violation of constitutional rights. So we are trying to bring families together, providers together, individuals together to provide the support in their own state so that they can be successful in creating more options that best meet their needs.
0: And if I remember correctly, it doesn't cost anything for a family member to become a member, right?
1: Correct. Family members, we want to provide support as much as we can, as we all know, special needs families. Financially, it's a huge burden for them to advocate for their child, even to look for resources. So we don't want cost to be a barrier to families joining our movement, but we do expect organizations, whether you're an emerging organization or established organization, we do expect our organizations to contribute to this advocacy effort that will in turn benefit the families that we are serving.
0: As we wind down, I want you to talk about, you have a a conference coming up this year, October 4th through 6th.
1: Yes. So our conference will be hosted by Opportunity Village in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the largest organization in Nevada serving thousands of individuals with development disabilities. Opportunity Village recently opened doors to about 100 or more residents in an affordable housing community called oh, the wow. Village. And now they're already on to their second project because there's so much need, even after, you know, in such a short period of time, they already have such a long wait list. So now they're responding to that need by working on their second project, which will probably be serving maybe 120 individuals with disabilities being able to live in an affordable housing community so our conference will be for families family advocates and service providers who would like to come together to learn about best practices our theme is looking uh, growing into the future so as we come out of covid <laughs> the pandemic and dealing with the the Direct work professional crisis, you know, worker shortage, funding shortage, budget issues, and all that kind of stuff. How do we grow into the future and successfully meet the needs of individuals with disabilities, not just at the beginning, but as these individuals get older, they age, their needs evolve and change? How can we best meet their evolving needs and preferences? through best practices, providing the right care for different type of needs, and also succession planning, sustainability for these organizations. You know, a lot of family groups pop up in different parts of the country trying to create some kind of solution for now. But a lot of these organizations that were initially founded by family members are now managed by professionals. And it's been around for 40, 50, 100 years. And now everybody's talking about succession planning, right? It's like, how do we help this, you know, our organization become more sustainable and, you know, through successful campaign, uh, capital campaign, having very strong reserve, but also understanding the needs, like some of these individuals that they started out with are now seniors, And they have aging issues, dementia, all those issues that we don't think about because we think about our kids with special needs. But these kids are now seniors. And so what do we do about that? And how do we anticipate, you know, what in the future? So that's the focus of our conference. So you can go to our website www.togetherforchoice.org. Right now, we only have saved a date card listed, but invitation registration link will become available hopefully in the next month.
0: Yeah, and this is being recorded in May. This will probably air in middle of June, early July. So by the time it airs, the registration link will probably be on the website. So go to togetherforchoice.org and register. This this has been a great conversation. I, I. I appreciate your willingness to to be so frank and candid, Ashley i I don't feel like anybody benefits from trying to toe the middle line, right like you I have a very i i have I have opinions and i'm I'm willing to share them and I'm willing to have them challenged right if if somebody can show me the facts and the data. Then I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to have them challenged. I did enjoy this conversation. I am not necessarily a fan of sub minimum wage and sheltered workshops, but I, I understand where they can come into play and why why they're necessary. Because at the end of the day, just like housing, there's not there's never gonna be enough, you know. I, I just don't see it, I don't see a time when there's gonna be enough accessible, affordable housing. For everybody that needs it in the United States. I just I don't see that happening in my lifetime. By the same token, I'm a business owner and I I know employers, unless they can see how it's gonna benefit them, they're not gonna hire somebody with or without a disability, and nor should they. No, you know, they you you don't start a business to barely get by, right? I mean you start a
1: business to make
0: profit, yeah. Yeah, and there's no shame in that, even nonprofits. Our businesses, the difference is you're not passing your profits to shareholders. Right. Your 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 profits should be going to your programs.
1: But you anyway, still have you, to be profitable. <laughs> so, so the other day I was on a customer service line and it took forever to get something resolved. And somebody mentioned, somebody commented, well, that job's gonna be eliminated pretty soon, thanks to AI. Right. So when we're looking at, you know, recession. Some people argue that we're already in recession. Others are saying that it's coming very soon and it's not going to be pretty, right? And we're looking at all these, you know, shortage of opportunities. I I also see some programs shutting down because they just cannot be sustainable. We have to preserve all options. I do wish that people who can work in different type of you know settings who want to pursue other career opportunities. I want everyone to have a career that they like, but the reality is that that's not the case. And so how do we try to preserve as many opportunities as possible? That is from not eliminating the options that we already have and supporting what, indiv- what the individual wants and wants to pursue and and just keeping them at home watching TV and wasting away is not the it's not it's not going to help anybody and and our position is you know it could come in the form of shelter workshop it could come in the form of seventy one wage whatever it is whatever it takes i support all good options that meet their needs and preferences that's all
0: yeah i i i think that's a great way to end it is you know that reminder that there's no such thing as one size fits all. Mm-hmm. No matter where you're looking. No, th- this this was awesome, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to the interview with Ashley. I well, I believe this these topics can be very polarizing, and I I hope that you were able to listen to it with an open mind. And if you have strong feelings, either for or against something I said or Ashley said, share them in the comments. I, I truly am open to learning from you. I, I only have my experience to work off of. And you know, often I worry that I'm in an echo chamber. Part of why I bring guests on is to help me get away from the echo chamber. And I really look for comments from, from listeners to help with that as well. If you don't want to make a public comment, you can email me eric at specialneedsnavigator.us and I'm I'm happy to read any comments. I'll respond if you want me to, but I'm I'm open to uh, having a discussion around these topics. I, I think it's important that we have further discussion. If you know a guest that would that feels differently than Ashley does, that maybe they're very against sheltered workshops and sub-minimum wage, and they have more than just an emotional response to it. I'd love to have them on and, and, and share the counterpoint in another episode. I'm I'm certainly open to learning. If you're looking for services and you're you're struggling to navigate the maze of benefits, resources, and services, when it comes to intellectual development disabilities, please don't hesitate to reach out. I offer 30-minute Pick My Brain sessions. If you have children between the ages of 14 to 21, 22, 26 in Michigan that are looking at transitioning from high school and leaving high school and going to an adult waiver program or adult services, look at getting my roadmaps from my website. I built them to help individuals with transitioning children navigate this maze so they don't have to do it themselves. Thanks for listening.